0: We thank you for this day that, that and, and age that we live in. We thank you that we are part of the new covenant. We thank you for all the many things that you have revealed to us in your word because of that. We thank you especially for our salvation through Jesus. That as a writer of Hebrews says that everybody before Jesus could only look forward to the promises. Look and see them from afar, but we get to enjoy them. And so, Lord, we thank you for for that blessing. We thank you for your word that it is timeless, and that it is challenging, and that it is comforting. We pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts to hear what you have for us this morning. That your seeds of truth may be buried deep within us, and bear real fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we are at, at Super Bowl Sunday once again. There, there are three types of people when it comes to the Super Bowl. There are those big fans of either one of the teams who are heavily heavily invested in the game itself, and they're they're watching the game. You try to say anything that <laughs> wait till the commercial. They they are they are focused on the game. Then you have those who just watch the Super Bowl so they can watch the commercials right that's that's what they say shh don't talk to me until the game comes back on (laughs) and then you and then you have those. then there are those who who who, uh, put something else on the TV and say wake me up when baseball season starts again or the race cars start going around the track again but there are those who for this year are either huge Falcons fans or huge Patriots fans some of you were sitting here thinking, oh, that's who's in the Super Bowl this year. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for mentioning that. I bet there are some here who would be just as invested in the game if, say, the Eagles or the Steelers or the Giants were playing. These hardcore fans have spent weeks watching ESPN analyze the matchups and statistics of how many dropped passes each team has how many completions each team has had, and how many times each of the quarterbacks has been caught picking their nose on the camera. But in the end, what is ultimately going to matter is as to who wins and who loses are the little things in the game, right? That's what's gonna matter as to who wins and who loses. A a, a turnover of downs, incomplete passes, an injury-causing tackle, all these things pile up on top of one another, and those will be what will determine the outcome of the game. It's the same with our Christian lives. It's not so much the big things that determine how victorious we are in our battles with sin, it's the little decisions that we make every day that stack up on one another. And it will be those little decisions that we make every day that will affect how people who are watching us view faith in Jesus. It could be the stranger behind you in line at the store or the bank. It could be your spouse. Or it could be the little child who will be mirroring how they make those same little decisions after what they observe about you. So Paul explains a little about this lifelong war in us as we continue on in our series in the the letter to the Galatian churches. The war between who we naturally are as sinful human beings and the Holy Spirit that indwells us as believers. So the first point that we come to as we continue our series in Galatians is the walk. Paul first explains in the the war of life that there are only two sides. And that's what we read when we read in verse 16. So please turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be continuing on in verse 16. If you didn't bring your Bible with you today, that's perfectly fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. And I want everybody to turn there with me so we can all see this together. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. There are only two sides in this war. There is no third option. There is no option to sit on the bench. The claim that one can be spiritual but not have a commitment to, to any, any kind of belief is an invalid argument. That's claiming a third option that simply doesn't exist. There are only two sides to life, as Paul says here in verse 16. There is either the side that believes and lives a lifestyle in agreement with God and his standards, that is, walking by the Spirit, or the side that doesn't. There are only two sides. There is no middle ground. There is no side whereby someone can pick and choose what they like from the Bible and what they like about God and say, I'm a child of God and a Christian. That option does not exist. Here's why. We as human beings think we run the game. But we don't. God does. And so God gets to decide what sides are, what the sides are, and how many there are, that there are only two, and what those sides are. It's as as illogical for someone to run onto the field during the Super Bowl game and yell I don't think there should be a winner or a loser here. We should just have a third option where anyone from either team can leave their team and form a third team and that just decides that there's no game, no rivalry, no winners or losers and everyone wins. (laughs) What would happen if somebody tried running onto the field yelling that? Well, they'd be hauled away by security, right? There's no third option. There are only two teams and they play until there's a winner. It's completely ridiculous thinking about that person making a difference in that game because that that one person does not get to decide what the outcome or even the point of the game is. That's already been decided. They can't change that. In the same way, God has already decided that there are only two sides in life love God and thus love God's standards and live by them, or you don't actually love God. There are only two sides. O- there has only been what was at the heart of the law since the beginning of time, love God first and foremost, and because of that, love others, that we talked about last week, what's at the heart of the Mosaic law, love God first and for- foremost, and because of that, love others. The original sin was that Adam and Eve chose to love themselves rather than God and his standard. And ever since then, the human race has been embroiled in this lifelong war of whether or not to choose to love God or love ourselves. That's what every little decision in our life is ultimately based on. A lot of people believe that you can pray a prayer sometime or claim a belief in God, but just go on living your life the way you want to. Yell, don't tell me what to believe and come up with what you think is right or wrong. But that's an invalid way of thinking and living. That simply doesn't exist according to God. What that is, is believing that you walk by the spirit and be allowed to still carry out the desires of your sinful human nature. That's what that is. What does Paul say in verse 16? But I say walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Paul is outright declaring here that if you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of your sinful nature. Now that seems like a pretty bold and outlandish statement for Paul to make, doesn't it? Every believer in Jesus will still fall and still fail to carry carry out the desires of their human nature every once in a while. So is Paul saying that no one is really a believer? That if you do carry out the desires of your sinful nature, that you don't walk by the spirit and you're therefore not a believer. Is that what he's saying here? What may seem like at best exaggeration is really typification. And I know that's not a word if you look it up. (laughs) It's really typification. Let me explain. Paul is not saying that believers in Jesus must act perfectly or they're not really believers. That in and of itself is legalism, like we talked about last week, and goes completely against what Paul was just talking about in the previous passage as to what faith really is. Not legalism, not licentiousness, but liberty, right? What Paul is saying is that the believer in Jesus must typify this way of living. That must be what they are known for. Must typify this way of living, in other words, the believer in Jesus must identify themselves as holding on to God's standard of living. A biblical scholar put it this way, and we're about to get a lesson in theology here, so buckle up a little bit. There are a lot of concepts in the believer's life that can be characterized as now and not yet. And they're both equally true. There are concepts in the believer's life that are both now and not yet. Here are some examples. Paul says in his letter to the Roman Christians that they are both adopted now as children of God, but at the same time, they're also awaiting adoption as God's children. Right? You read that in the book of Romans. Similarly, when a person commits his, his or her life to Jesus, the Bible says that they are dead to sin now, but they also must consider themselves dead to sin. Likewise, The believer in Jesus is to be typified or identified utmost with living by God's standards, even though there will be times of failure before Jesus perfects us. So in other words, as I've been explaining, there is no middle ground of wanting to be a child of God but not wanting to typify and utmost be identified with living and behaving as a follower. Of Jesus, You can't have it both ways. And here's what we need to typify as believers in Jesus. Being focused on living according to the guidance and leading of the Holy Spirit in every decision that we make, including whether or not to sin, and therefore not be focused on fulfilling our selfish desires. See, there are people who don't even factor that into their thinking. When a situation presents itself, they just react the way they want to react without giving it a second thought. Then they excuse that away by saying, don't look at me, this is just the way I am. (laughs) That's the problem, that that's the way that you are. (laughs) We're not to react the way that we are, We're to reach with the way that Jesus is and the way the Holy Spirit is leading us to. That requires a cultivation of sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. When we're focused on cultivating a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, then we're not focused on how close we can get to the edge of the cliff before technically falling off of it. We're not focused on that. We're focused on cultivating a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. When we're focused on cultivating a a, a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, that kind of thinking doesn't even enter our minds. So for the believer, this isn't really a battle of trying not to do something we know we shouldn't. That's That's not the focus of our battle. It's a battle of how much we're cultivating a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit or not. That's the real battle that we're in as believers in Jesus. It's a battle of how much we cultivate a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And then that pours into every aspect of our lives, including those personal struggles we have. This cultivation of a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit guides those little decisions we have to make in life. When we base those decisions on the guidance and leading of the Spirit, we won't open ourselves up to reacting in a humanly selfish way. How do we cultivate a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit? Well, we cultivate and focus on the fruits of the Spirit, which we'll cover next week. If you want to jump ahead and see what those fruits are, you can can jump ahead to verses 22 through 23 in the same chapter. So we have the walk. Walk. What the two sides are. We're either walking by the Spirit or not walking by the Spirit. And secondly, we have the war. Here is why there are only two sides in this war. And here is why we cannot opt out and just sit on the bench. In verse 17, this is what we read. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Our selfish, sinful nature that we inherited from Adam is wrapped up in this term that Paul uses all the time called flesh. Well, notice what Paul says about it, that the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. I like the way that the original Greek simply renders it, that the flesh desires against the spirit. That's, that's what it is. That's what it does. See, the flesh setting its desire against the Spirit implies that it can be unset. But the fact that the flesh always desires against what the Spirit desires shows us what this war is all about. If we're not cultivating a sensitivity to the Spirit, if we're not cultivating a sensitivity to the Spirit, we're automatically cultivating a sensitivity to our human nature. That's just the way it is. Think of it as a direct correlation graph. As the spirit increases, the flesh decreases. And as the flesh increases, the spirit decreases. You can't have it both ways. You can't have both of them increase at the same time. And that is why it's a war. The last part of this verse makes this statement even more vivid. We read in verse 17, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please or what you wish. In other words, every human must choose a side. And every human must choose a side knowing what will happen when they choose that side. What do I mean by this? If a person decides I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to commit my life to God as my king over my life. I'm going to choose the Holy Spirit's side and and thus will be actively targeted and fought against by not only the enemy of our souls, but that which is always with us, namely our selfish and sinful human nature. If you choose the side of the Spirit, you have an enemy. You automatically have an enemy and it's your sinful nature and it's the enemy of your soul. Likewise, if a follower of Jesus decides that they want to indulge their selfishness, the power, influence and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit starts to diminish. They can no longer at that point claim they're doing what they feel God is telling them to do. That's an impossibility at that point. Why would you expect any kind of special blessing, special guidance from God if you're cultivating your selfishness and living against his standards? Again, you cannot have it both ways. Furthermore, if a person has not committed themselves to follow Jesus, that person is automatically on the side of selfishness and sinful nature. As such, the Bible says that God is opposed to and against that person, and you cannot have it both ways. So don't be surprised when you make an everyday seemingly little decision in life to follow the Spirit's influence in a situation, and your sinful nature all of a sudden suddenly roars loudly at you. You think, whoa, where where did that come from? Don't be surprised when the next situation is presented in such a way that your sinful nature is very loud and in your face. Those times will always happen this side of heaven because we spend every second of every minute of our lives engaged in this war. There is never a time where there's a ceasefire. You will always be in this war. Don't ever think you're not in this war. Just like we must choose sides and we can't fool ourselves into thinking we don't need to choose a side, we also have to know that we're constantly in this war and that there's never a time when we're not in this war. You're in this war right now when you're sitting, to, sitting here listening to me. When we acknowledge and process through every situation and thought about that situation with the knowledge and truth that we're in this war we can expect what will happen in every situation and thus be able to be more easily prepared for each battle those with addictions know this war very well they've been war-hardened they always know they're in a war and they can prepare themselves for possible situations Sometimes they feel weak because they know the extent of the war they're in and they can't do it anymore. But rest assured, God will give you victory in his timing. Do not lose heart when you fail. Get back up, resting on God's strength, and fight another day. You have victory in Jesus. You have freedom that you will be fully freed someday. Those who don't consider themselves addicted to something may not always recognize that they're in a war and in some ways that's even more dangerous because you think that everything's fine. All of us, regardless of our battles, need to know that we're all in this war, that we're all in this war together and we need to recognize the battles that we're in. Some might think, why don't we all just love each other and everybody just get along? Why does everything have to be a fight? Why does everything have to constantly be about war? Here's the glaring weakness with that worldview. That's trying to put a band-aid on a gushing, gaping wound. No one can deny the evil in our world and no one can deny how evil people can be. So no one can honestly believe that we can wish it our way or just try to be a better person. Just look around the world and you'll see the truth. That salvation does not rest in humanity. It never will. We need a deliverer. So Paul's words here in Galatians are merely revealing what the truth of the matter is. Just removing that veil from before our faces, revealing what the truth of the matter is. The sooner we recognize that there is always a war, and that we're always in this war, this side of heaven, and that we must choose sides in this war, and that we must take responsibility for the choose, the side that we choose, then healing and recovery can finally begin. So we have the walk Secondly, we have this war. There are two sides. We must choose one of them. And we are always in this war. We cannot, we don't have the option of opting out of this war. And thirdly, we have the war cry. This is the truth. But God gives us this war cry. He's the one who, as we stand on the verge of another battle, any. War movie with people on horses holding swords and getting ready to charge a city has this scene in it. The the leader running up and down the line, encouraging them, boosting their morale, giving them strength and courage to do what they know they have to do now. And this is God right now giving us that war cry. He's the one running up and down the line as we're on the verge of charging against the flesh, against our sinful nature. And he is giving us this encouragement. He's giving us this morale-boosting declaration of courage in verse 18. But you, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now some of you are thinking, <laughs> some war cry. <laughs> I don't even get it let alone have my morale boosted by it. Paul is by no means saying that believers in Jesus are not under the morality of the heart of the law because there would be no point as to what he's just said about this war that we're all in. What Paul means by this is, is this. Elsewhere in his letter to the believers in Rome, Paul outlines the weakness of the law in the believers' war against sin. He says... I would not have come to to know sin except through the law. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Remember the greater context of this letter, who he's writing to, that he's writing to the Gentile believers who have been coerced by these Jewish Christian legalists that they had to subject themselves to the Mosaic law in order to perfect themselves, and earn their justification and salvation uh, from God. Paul is showing how strictly adhering to the Mosaic law isn't even practical for Christian living. Not only can it not be the basis for your salvation, it's not even practical for daily Christian living. What it's good for is pointing out God's righteous standards and how woefully short we fall from them. That's That's what it's good for. But there is no power or strength derived from simply following the law in order to follow what is at the heart of the law, specifically loving God and loving others. All you're doing is just trying to check off all the things that you're doing right and try to do the things you're doing wrong better, not do them. So not only was the Jewish law never the way to to salvation from God's wrath, it was never meant to be the empowering basis for godly living. Yes, it pointed out the standards, but there was never any power in it to strengthen you to follow those standards. Making the Mosaic law God stripped the power from the real God who had given it in the first place. But when you set aside a strict adherence to the law, legalism, and we live by walking in the Spirit, liberty, like we talked about last week, the Spirit gives us the power to fight and overcome the battles of sin in our lives. In other words, Paul is saying here in verse 18, you don't have to live powerlessly anymore. You can have the Spirit's power in your life with Him being the one transforming you and Him being the one empowering you. That truly is a war cry, isn't it? That truly is emboldening. That your war, the war that you are in, you are not fighting alone. You are not fighting it with your own strength or how good you can try to be. You're fighting it with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. You're fighting it with the same power that spoke the heavens and the stars into existence. You're fighting it with the same power that not only defeated death, but saved us from God's wrath so that we can be reconciled with him only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the same power that you go into every battle with every single day. Amen? Amen. Stop living as if you're under this legalistic framework of just doing things or just not doing things and just trying to be a better person. Your life is not defined by how well you do things or how well you don't do things. The definition of your life has always begun and has always ended With God. That's the definition of your life. It's always begun and it's always ended with God. It always has been that way. God is the one who draws you to himself. God is the one who gives you your faith. God is the one who justifies you and saves you. And God is the one who gives you the strength and power to live in a righteous way. Your victory will only come from and be because of him and his indwelling of you through the third person of the Trinity. You who walk by the Spirit are filled with His power to overcome. Do you believe that? You who walk by the Spirit are filled with His power to overcome. You are filled with His power to have victory. You are filled with His power to be free. But remember, walking by the Spirit means committing the way you live your life to Him and relying on his power. Relying on his own power will always, relying on your own power will always lead to selfishness, will always lead to indulging your selfishness. And indulging your selfishness will be manifested in the little, everyday decisions that we make. So if you wonder to yourself, am I walking by the Spirit or am I walking by myself? Look at, Your little everyday decisions that you make. What are your little everyday decisions showing you who you're walking by? Walking in the spirit mean means that changes need to be made. That will always be true. Doesn't matter what your age is. It doesn't matter how long you've been walking with the Lord. Walking by the spirit always means changes need to be made. And that's a good thing, those of you who feel uncomfortable with that statement. That's a very good thing. It means that we all need to humble ourselves to see that we're all in this war between spirit and flesh, and none of us is doing a good job on our own. All of us need to humble ourselves to see that truth. It means we all must humble ourselves to ask ourselves the honest question, Which side do my little everyday decisions show that I'm fighting for? The side of my selfishness and pride? Or the side of daily reliance on the Spirit's leading? It means that we all must then recognize what changes need to be made and ask for the Spirit's transformation in that area. What will be the outcome Of the stacking up of the little decisions in your life. Who will win? Will your selfishness or pride win? Or will your humble reliance on the Holy Spirit win? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that it is both challenging, that it is revealing, and that it is empowering. We thank you that you do not just tell us things and then leave us alone. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you reveal what the truth is and then you give us the power to live that out. Lord, thank you for not leaving us on our own. Thank you for not leaving us where you found us. Oh, Lord, thank you for transforming us. Thank you for empowering us, that you love us that much to fill us with your power. You didn't have to indwell us with your Holy Spirit, but you want to. to, to... to Give us a fighting chance in this war that we're in. We thank you for that. We never want to take that gift for granted. So Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the war that we're all in. To know that we're never in a place or time where we're not in that war. And to give us the strength and power to to win that war. We thank you for already giving us victory in Jesus. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's table here.